What if you could complete your MBA in just one year? Thanks to the College of Charleston School of Business, now you can. Their accelerated MBA program condenses a traditional two-year program into one rigorous year, ensuring you not only save a year of tuition and fees, but also re-enter the workforce quickly and graduate with critical business knowledge. U.S. News & World Report recognized the College of Charleston MBA as number one in the country for its job placement rate within three months of graduation. Learn more at mba.cfc.edu. Opinions voiced in this program are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, and financial advisor or tax advisor prior to investing. Securities are offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. Good morning, and welcome to Beyond the Business, brought to you by the College of Charleston School of Business. The College of Charleston School of Business, where students are beyond ready to work, they're ready to make an impact. Each Saturday morning at 9, successful business leaders and entrepreneurs from across the Lowcountry talk about what it takes to succeed in business and in life. Now your hosts of Beyond the Business, Eric Cox and Leslie Haywood. And great Saturday morning, Low Country. Welcome to another edition of Beyond the Business, presented by the College of Charleston School of Business and Coastal Wealth Management. I'm one of your hosts here this morning, Eric Cox, with the lovely and talented Leslie Haywood. Good morning, Leslie. Happy Labor Day weekend and good morning, Low Country. And thank you for sharing your Saturday mornings with us. And make sure and continue the fun beyond Saturday mornings and go to our Facebook page at Beyond the Business or on Twitter at BTBCHS. How you doing, Eric? Doing great. Love this holiday. This is one of my favorite holiday weekends just because I relax so much and football is starting and the boat is still running. It's like it's all going strong right now. I love it. And you know what? This is a great weekend. To, you know, you wake up kind of later than normally because it's a holiday. You get your coffee. And what else would you rather do on a Saturday morning than to listen to incredible stories of entrepreneurship and leadership? I agree. Uh, nothing. From, from around the globe, by the way. From around the globe. Yep. And, yep, and yep. so, speaking of which, we are fortunate enough to have last week's guest back with us, Mr. John Warlow, who is from Toronto, Canada. He's the founder and CEO of the Value Builder System. John, good morning to you. I know you guys also get to celebrate Labor Day up there. And, and that Absolutely. Next week, what do you have on tap for this wonderful weekend? Just relaxing, like you. See, uh, that's what I said. A little boating, a right? little, uh, yeah, little barbecuing. Look at that. It's just like you're here in the low country, right? <laughs> Get out the grill. You, yeah, you smell the pluff mud, right? It's <laughs> like, what the heck is a pluff mud? We'll have to tell you about pluff mud later. You might, yeah. yeah. So, John, we're going to talk about you for a minute like you're not here, if that's okay. Um, Leslie, you know, again, just like we do and have for eight years, amazing stories week in and week out. Um, give us a nugget or two that you took away from John's show last week. Well, there was a few things. I thought that the one of the most interesting perspectives was how physical stature can sometimes affect the trajectory of your life and how sometimes those kids that are outsiders, so parents, you know, if you've got a kid that is maybe struggling a little bit, doesn't have many friends or whatever, in his non-scientific study, those are the kids that make their own way and find their entrepreneurial spirit because they aren't just given the golden goose of being the most popular person on the on the football team and rising to the CEO level of a, doing the corporate thing. So that whole perspective, I felt was so fascinating. 
Certainly one in eight years that I've never heard of in regards to this show. So I appreciate John bringing some new content to us uh, last week. And uh, I know for me, you know, I, I got a glimpse of I think what today show is going to be a lot about in terms of him talking about how do you win a customer and then figure out how to underwrite the cost and you know the formula of the lease being three to one. And so I think understanding that there's a quantifiable message behind what John's work is, I'm excited to hear the rest of that today. And so with that, John, let's turn to um, kind of today's show. And, and again, maybe unfortunately, there was a listener, God forbid, who didn't get to hear your show last week. So let's give them a quick nugget of what your practice is all about. Yeah, sure thing. So I run Value Builder, which is a practice management software for advisors who work with business owners. And I'm also the author of a book called Built to Sell. And one they call it called The Automatic Customer and a new one called The Art of Selling Your Business. And that's me in a nutshell. And so the the context around all that is? Yeah, you know, I've, I've been involved in a few businesses. My last company was a quantitative market research business where we had very large enterprise customers. So big, you know, Bell South, before they merged, was a customer. Uh, AT&T, Microsoft were all customers, and we did market research for them. And I built it up to about five or six million in revenue, call it 30 employees. We had great profit margins, like 20, 30% profit margins every year. So it was a great business. And I went to think about selling it. And I saw a guy named Perry Maley in Toronto, and and I kind of was rubbing my hands together saying, Perry, like, what do you think it's worth, right? And, and he said, well, before I can answer that, let me let me just ask you a couple of questions. Shoot. Well, who does the research? And I was like, well, I'm involved in some of the research, right? Like it's these big clients, Bank of America. I mean, I have to be involved. And he said, okay, well, who does the selling? And I'm like, I'm involved in the selling too. Like these big enterprise customers, they expect me to show up, right? And he's like, well, I hate to tell you this, John, but there's nothing to sell. And I'm like, wait a minute, I, I've got all these clients and with all this profit and revenue. What do you mean we don't have anything to sell? He's like, no, I, if you're doing the selling and you're doing the research, I can't sell your company. There's there's nothing to sell. And you know, I walked into that office thinking that I had, uh, you know, was sitting on a gold mine, and I left feeling like about an inch tall, right? That that what I'd been building, what I thought was valuable, a client list, uh, profits, revenue, was not what acquirers really care about. They care about how transferable as the business, how well it will run when you are not there. And so that's what really kicked off a journey for me to try to understand, all right, well, what, if it's not the client list and it's not the profit, like what is going to make this business sellable? And through Perry's help and another, you know, a number of other people, I, you know, we transfer for the business into a subscription model. Uh, we hired sales teams and, and ultimately it was acquired by a New York Stock Exchange listed company. So it had a happy ending for for me, but it was a very difficult kind of moment. And it, tr- you know, it, 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 it triggered for me what has been this journey since then, which is to understand what does drive the value of a company. That it's is funny. fascinating. Uh, yeah, it's funny you say that too, because I've been over the last couple of years really focused on this and I tell my wife all the time, uh, that she's always like, what's your goal? I said, my goal is to make Eric Cox less relevant in coastal wealth manage- management. And she's like, why would you want to be less relevant? And I'm like, she you know, doesn't really understand. Like, I'm not trying to take myself out of the picture, but it's about the company, not the person. And right. so it's that same revelation. So uh, I'm curious, and sorry, Leslie, I'm going to steal your thunder for a minute, no, but just I- in your journeys, if you could put a percent to it uh, of, of organizations you talk to, entrepreneurs uh, that you work with, what percent of them, when you get into that conversation, are 
is their company built on their personality and not a self-sustaining organization like you just described? Yeah, I think the vast majority of companies with less than five employees, the owner is the rainmaker. It is their business. They may have a couple of helpers, but clients, customers want them to serve. We, you know, we talk about it uh, in the context of a ceiling, right? Bit, about five or six employees, maybe around seven, $800,000 in revenue. You just run out of hours in the day where you can't keep doing it all yourself. And so that's the point at which I think you've reached that fork in the road where you say, okay, I can continue to run a lifestyle business and make a lot of money and have a couple of helpers around the office and just do the thing that I like doing and have a great lifestyle business, knowing that it will never be a sellable company. Or I can basically put the infrastructure in place so that it is a sellable company. And that means basically making sure it doesn't depend on me personally. And, and that's one of the challenges I think that we, we have to overcome is to, is to, is to make that mental shift. You know, a lot of your listeners are parents. And I think what, what we all know as parents is in the early days of our children's lives, like we're, we're responsible for everything, right? Feeding, burping them, everything, right? But when they grow up a little bit, they start to get a little bit more independence. And then by the time they're teenagers, I mean, Leslie, your kids, like the kind of goal is to get them out of the house, right? And to get them to be successful and living on their own terms. And that's what I think we need to do with our companies is, is really where the, the, the hat of, this instead of the CEO of our company uh, is the parent of our company. And the ultimate goal is to actually not hit some revenue target or profitability target is to get our business to a point where it can actually succeed without us. And just like parenting, that's the ultimate asset test of whether you're a successful business parent is if it can live without you. Oh my God. This is, I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm getting a master's in business just listening to you. This is a, a perspective that's just so fascinating. And it's hard because a lot of times as entrepreneurs, our ego gets in the way. And I did experience this a little bit. You know, it's a, it's a hard pill to swallow when you realize that you're no longer the best person to run your company, which is why I licensed it. But uh, man, ego, uh, you know, it's just one of those things where we want to believe that what we started and grew, that we are the person that made that happen. And really, that's not what you want. You don't yeah. want to be that person. And there's an adrenaline rush too, right? There's this, sure. there's an affirmation when you make a sale and that somebody, a customer wants you, that feels good, that pumps up your tires. And there's there's that affirmation that, that comes with it. I remember I, I got a chance to attend uh, an event called the Birthing of Giants. They selected 60 entrepreneurs from around the world to go to MIT's Executive Education Center. They've, they've since renamed the event something else, but at the time it was this pretentious name called the Birthing of Giants. And I was one, one of 60 entrepreneurs that was in invited. And I'll never forget, it was an amphitheater style city. And we'd seen some amazing speakers, uh, Pat Lynchoni talk about how to build a team, Jack Stack talk about how do you, you know, do employee ownership stuff. And, and we had this other entrepreneur came in who I didn't actually know. And he had just sold his company and he walked in and he said, all right, how many of you are involved in selling your product or service? And like literally every single one of us, 60 hands went up in the air, kind of proud of that fact, like little school kids saying, oh, look, pick me, pick me. I, you know, I'm involved. And he said, okay, put your hands down. He said, all of you have the right skills, but you're selling the wrong product. And we're like, what do you mean? And he's like, 
you're all great marketing and selling and influencing people, but you need to hire salespeople to sell your product or your service. You need to inject those skills at influencing in building the value of your company, in selling ultimately the value of your company to a potential acquirer. You make a few thousand dollars when you make a sale, you can make many millions of dollars when you sell your company. And when he, like when that landed for me as a guest at that event, like it was like I'd been watching, playing amateur baseball and all of a sudden they'd had a glimpse at like the professional league, right? Like I felt like, oh my gosh, I've been totally focused on the wrong stuff. This was like life-changing for me, that kind of comment that you've got the right skills, you gotta stop selling the wrong product. And it goes back to this ego fulfillment of like, I love making a sale, that's great and it lasts a few minutes. But when you hire salespeople that can do the selling on your behalf, that is something that first of all has legs to it, 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 it perpetuates itself and, and you're building a valuable company in, in the process. So, John, I got to imagine we have listeners out here, right? They they run businesses, they own businesses, they're they're going along the train, and this is resonating. So, my question is, based on your experience and certainly your wisdom, what would be a nugget of the first step? Where do you where do you start that process? Because it's a you know mentally is the is kind of the first place to get through that, right? How do you encourage people to get over that first hump? Yeah, I think it's figuring out your TVR. TVR stands for teachable, valuable, repeatable. Put all of the services and products you offer today and score them on the degree to which you can teach them to employees that they are valuable to customers. The opposite of valuable is is a commodity and they are repeatable, meaning your customers have to purchase them on a regular cadence. Because here's the thing, most small businesses start out and they sell lots of things to a few people and that makes them deeply dependent on a couple of customers and one that the owner needs to be the, the, the person who does the work because they're the one that with the most industry expertise that allows them to do all, all of the things that they offer. What the most valuable companies do is exactly the opposite. They sell just a few things to lots of people. The most valuable companies sell just a few things to a lot of people. So it's about figuring out your TVR, one product or service that you can offer, which you can teach employees to deliver, is valuable to customers, not a commodity, and is repeatable, meaning customers have to repeat purchase it. And so, I mean, I'll give you an example. There's a company based in Danbury, England called the School Photography Company. And they did this process when they looked at photography, right? You've got weddings and you've got funerals or not funerals. You've got weddings, you've got uh, bar mitzvahs and graduations, et cetera. But they discovered that there is school photographs that meets the three criteria because school photographs are, are, they developed a formula for getting kids in and out of a classroom in eight minutes. And so headmasters at these private schools wanted to bring in this special photography company that had this eight minute formula. So it was valuable to customers. They could teach the eight minute formula of getting kids in and out of the classroom in just a few minutes. So that was teachable to young photographers. You didn't have to hire some fancy brand name photographer to take the school photograph. And then it's repeatable because we, as parents want to document the journey of our kids through every year, we bring the same company come back and back and back. And so they decided to focus on just doing school photographs instead of all of the other things that would, they could be selling to make money. And that's requires a lot of discipline, 
But again, it, it starts with, I think, this journey of getting out of what we call the owner's trap, which is where you hit five or $600,000 in revenue and you just can't get any bigger, is to, is, to, is to put a whiteboard up or a blank sheet of paper and score all of your services on the degree to A, to which you can teach them to employees, B, they're valuable to customers, C, they're repeatable, TVR. Wow. And now how did – so give us a, a – flavor for how the value builder system came about, like what you're doing right now. Yeah. So value builder is a practice management software. And it's funny, I wrote a book called Built to Sell, which kind of talks a lot about the, some of these concepts, about how do you build a company that, that can thrive without you, that's, that's transferable, um, et cetera. And to sell the book, we bought the website builttosell.com. And I got the idea of, of putting together a little like quiz that people could take in order to evaluate the sellability of their business. Think about like, you know, Cosmopolitan Magazine, what kind of lover are you? Or like men's health, what kind of athlete are you? Like whatever, like 10 questions, you could plug it in and like it would tell you one of three. And so I'm like, that's kind of a cool way to sell a book. So we put together this thing called the sellability score and it, you know, drew some traffic to our website, but I started to get calls and emails from advisors who wanted to use that questionnaire on their website as a way to attract clients. So exit planners, financial advisors, business brokers, M&A professionals who were like, hey, could we just borrow a steel license by that quiz? And I'm like, huh, there's a market out there for tools that advisors could use to attract business owners. And anyways, long story short, that's what we do at Value Builder. We've got a whole suite of tools that advisors use to attract business owners that want to have this exit planning conversation. So when you talk about selling a business, obviously we're in a different time and era right now, post-COVID or kind of post-COVID, right? Uh, we're talking about tax changes <laughs> here in the United States. <laughs> that's right. Tax changes here in the United States where the fear of capital gains uh, particularly for business owners going exorbitantly high. We're seeing a high volume of businesses trying to sell right now. Um, talk a little bit about some of the, maybe the the mistakes, common mistakes you see as people are getting to that phase where they're, they're, they're initiating sale, thinking about sale, but yet maybe haven't thought it all the way through. Oh man, you know, the art of selling your business is a whole section that's all the 31 mistakes that we make. So when we go to sell, so I, I mean, I'll, I'll pull, top five. I'll, yeah, I'll pull one out. Um, one of the things that your listeners, those who own a business, will likely get in the process of their journey is uh, an inbound inquiry from an acquirer. They go have lunch. And at some point during the meal, the, the acquirer will say, You know, Jimmy, you built this great business. Like, like, what do you want for it? And it seems like such an innocuous question to answer, right? Like, what do you want for your company? I mean, like, you know, we're, let's not waste each other's time. Like, just give me a sense of what you're thinking, you know, you'd like to get for your company so I can see if that's reasonable for us. And you can, you know, there's no way to answer that question without putting yourself in a corner. If you ask, if you answer it and throw out some outlandish number that your company is clearly not worth, just so you don't put a ceiling on the value of your company, a lot of acquirers will walk away instantly. Before they get to know your business, they'll just be like, well, that guy doesn't have a clue. I don't, it's not worth my time, right? Equally, if you answer reasonably, you inadvertently may put a ceiling onto which you will never sell your business before. I remember I, I interviewed uh, a guy uh, who built a company called Pepper Jam and great little business. And he got a call from a guy named Michael Rubin. And Michael Rubin is this sort of like unicorn, owns like billionaire, you know, major tech luminary. 
And my guest went to Michael Rubin's office thinking he was having this sort of kind of one-on-one conversation with another tech person. And Michael, before even exchanging kind of pleasantries with my guest, said, like, what do you want for Pepper Jam? And he's like, what do you mean what do I want for Pepper Jam? I was like, what do you want? Like, how much do you want to sell your company for? And he kind of blurted out a number. And at that time, Michael Rubin was flanked by his chief financial officer, head legal counsel, and he just turned to them and said, all right, I think we can get a deal done. And what Chris Jones, who's the name of the entrepreneur I'm referring to, owned Pepper Jam, told me after the fact, he's like, I probably shouldn't have answered that question, right? Because the way he responded so quickly to his CFO and his chief legal counsel is like, all right, you know, the marching orders were don't pay a cent more than that number. Go, make it happen, right? Like, and, and so there's no way to answer that question without sort of painting yourself into a corner. So I would just simply put it back on the acquirer and say, hey, look, I'm a reasonable person. I'm, I'm happy to entertain any reasonable offer you think is fair and leave it at that. All these this awesome exit strategies. Now, you're an amazing marketer for your your suite of, of goods and services. What do you think is one of the biggest tools for people marketing their own business? Where have you found the most success for getting the name out of your company? Yeah, you know, I'm a huge recurring revenue fan. And the beauty of recurring revenue is you make one sale and it lasts a lifetime or it lasts mm-hmm. many, in many cases, many years. So from a marketing perspective, you know, the, the worst thing for an entrepreneur is to wake up at the beginning of the month and go, how am I going to recreate this thing all over again? Right? Because you're you, all the dials go back to zero. If you're in a transactional business model, you got to go figure out how to stimulate demand, run advertising, try to get people in the door. You're not sure how many people are going to come. And Yet what the gift that keeps on giving is there's recurring revenue, right? If you've got recurring revenue, you kind of know when you start in a month, you've got a base of revenue. Um, a lot of people, when I when I talk about recurring revenue, they think, oh, like, you don't understand. That's not the way my industry works, right? Like they're in the in, you know manufacturing, their distribution, they might be in retail. And and usually I tell them the story of H. Bloom. Do you guys know H. Bloom? Have you ever ever heard of H. Bloom? Cool little business uh, based in New York. They sell flowers on subscription. If you know anything about selling flowers, it is a crappy business. Like farmer cuts the stem, right? And it starts to die. Typical flower store has rotting inventory in their fridge, has to throw out more than half of its inventory every single month just because the, the, the store owner guesses wrong about how much inventory they need, right? Mother's Day and Valentine's Day was when we all buy flowers. I mean, Eric, the exception of you, buys them for his wife every week. Which is, <laughs> every week, every, every week. Every week, like <laughs> clockwork. But most of us only buy Mother's Day and Valentine's Day, right? So you got 363 days a year to try to stimulate demand. How do you do that? You get some fancy office space or retail space you pay a fortune for to try to intercept somebody you know, who's forgotten their wife's birthday, for example. It's a crappy business. And so these two guys, Sanyu Panda, Brian Burkhart, looked at it and said, we're going to sell flowers, but we're not going to sell it through a retail store. We're going to sell it on subscription. And here's what they did. The mistake most people make when they're trying to transfer a transaction business to a subscription one is they try to boil the ocean and look at all their customers and say, what kind of subscription could I offer, right? So the people who buy flowers for graduation and weddings, and that's almost a recipe for making a diluted subscription offering. What they did is, is first, and what I would recommend anybody listening to this do first, 
is segment your customers. Try to figure out the buying triggers of each of the types of customers you work with. And what H. Bloom realizes that sure enough, there are some people who buy flowers for weddings, some for funerals, but there's this little segment of the flower buying universe. It is high-end wealth management companies, five-star hotels, and very expensive restaurants who buy flowers, put them on their reception table to give that sort of boutique higher-end image. And they need them every two weeks. And so H. Bloom said, that's our customer. So they went out to the five-star hotels and they said, look, we'll give you flowers, but your manager's too busy to go to the flower store. We'll ship them auto to you. We'll curate them so you get the best flowers. We'll get rid of the old ones for you. And we'll send you a commercial grade invoice because we know you're a business, not a consumer. They built a beautiful company. The average lifetime value of an H. Bloom subscriber is more than $4,500. Compare that to a transaction in a flower store, which is around $50. They throw out at H. Bloom less than 2% of their inventory. Why? Because they only buy flowers for the number of subscribers they have to fulfill. The average flower store is throwing out half of its inventory. I mean, which business would you rather own? Fascinating. Yeah. Wow. That's that's what, when you talk about marketing, Leslie, and like marketing tactics, for me, if you get $4,500 worth of value from a customer making one sale, it totally changes the economics of how you market your business. And, and that's, for me, where I would focus as a, as a marketer. So, John, somebody's listening out here today says, man, this guy's brilliant. I love his content. He's, he's spot on. How do they get uh, a hold of your book, hold of your content, hold of you? Where can they reach out? Builttosell.com. And if you click on, there's a little button that says free gifts. And we've actually put together a video series, eight key drivers of company value, the nine subscription model checklist. So you can figure out which subscription model might work for you. And uh, the art of selling your business workbook, which is kind of accompanies the physical book. So it's all just at builttosell.com. Leslie, you want to try a little lightning round before we run out of time today? Yes. Oh, I love it. I love it. I love it. So it is people you know, stories you don't. So a few questions just to get to know you and who you are. Best movie of all times, in your opinion? A few good men. Is there any question about that? (laughs) (laughs) Best book you've ever read? I read a book called Confessions of an SOB 25, 30 years ago. about the guy who started USA Today, the newspaper, and it changed my life. Is a, maybe a hidden talent that maybe a lot of people don't know that you have. I can sing Kenny Chesney songs all day long. <laughs> I love it. We have a few extra seconds here. <laughs> <laughs> and what what would you? Where would we find you on your perfect day off? On a mountain bike trail. Uh, and the last uh, last question: What is number one thing on your bucket list? Oh, man. <laughs> I'd like to hit the North Pole. I think uh, as a Canadian, I'm used to the cold, and I think it'd be cool to step on the North Pole one day. And there you have it, right? Mr. John Warlow, again, who is the CEO and founder of the Value Builder System. Thanks, John, so much for your time, your wisdom, and certainly bringing the energy to our audience. Thanks for being with us. Hey, good to be with you both. And again, Low Country, we hope you enjoy a wonderful holiday weekend. You've been listening to Beyond the Business, presented by the College of Charleston School of Business and Coastal Wealth Management. And until next Saturday morning, Low Country, 
Have a blessed week. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Business, brought to you by the College of Charleston School of Business. The College of Charleston School of Business, where students are beyond ready to work, they're ready to make an impact. Tune in next Saturday morning at 9 for Beyond the Business, hosted by Eric Cox and Leslie Haywood, and heard exclusively on News Radio 94.3 WSC. The College of Charleston School of Business is recognized among the top 30 colleges for studying business abroad by the Business Research Guide. With nine undergraduate majors, 10 minors, and six concentration areas, an honors program in business, and master's programs in business and accountancy, the College of Charleston School of Business has more than 3,000 students enrolled. Their students are ready to work, and they're ready to make an impact. For more info, visit sb.cfc.edu.